Well, we're back talking about the Bible. How was the week of Bible reading for you guys? These, uh, the Old Testament ones, very good. Uh, very entertaining, I thought. I actually read through most of First Kings and then all of Second Kings back late 2021. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it. So I, I was kind of looking forward to reading through it again. So I, I liked it. Nice. And I think we had maybe not a smaller section this time, but it seemed like the reading went way faster. Because it was interesting. At least I found it interesting. I don't know. Same, apparently. AJ, what what did you think about the Old and New Testament reading overall? I thought the reading was more interesting than last week. I agree with you guys, but I felt like it was about the same length, but okay. maybe just more interesting. So maybe that's why you guys felt that. But I didn't read into Acts, the portion that we were supposed to read for just where we cut off for where we stop for this week as we record this, but um, I did focus on just the last couple chapters in John, and I think, you know, as John's gospel kind of leads up to this the end of the book, I think there's it's a decent amount of stuff to talk about. I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but I think that I think there's a lot of important stuff there. Excellent. Well, I like I said, I think the reading was thoroughly enjoyable. As per usual, our Old Testament reading w- was longer in length than our New Testament reading. So it seems like we always have more to talk about at the Old Testament. So it's nice that you'll have some extra New Testament topics for us to talk about. Um, I have a few observations I'll want to make along the way. Um, but I'd be interested, Matthew, in you maybe kind of starting us off with your observations from our First Kings reading. I mean, I have specifics as we go along, uh, like stuff to talk about, but my overall impression, uh, a lot of kings weren't that great and didn't follow God, and, uh, you know, sometimes... Well, most of the time, stuff didn't go too well for him. Yeah, so let's start with the first king who didn't do so great, at least at the end of his life, Solomon in chapter 11. AJ, what what is your hot take on the end of the life of Solomon? Well, it seems like it wasn't just a steady decline. I mean, we don't have a ton of details as his life is just kind of summarized here, but it seems like as he takes more and more wives and you know violates the commands that the king was given by God, his relationship with God basically is non-existent, is what it sounds like, and he is turned over to these other gods, and then we're going to see the outworking of, of judgment in that, in his line. Yeah, can we stop and comment on the extraordinary number when it's recounting his wives? Yeah, that's a lot. Like a thousand, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Why? Yeah, Why? Uh, but then I think also, was it on this podcast where I was talking about Song of Solomon? I can't remember if this was in my my class at Bethlehem or here recently where I was talking about how at the beginning of the Song of Solomon, I was trying to argue that the daughters of Jerusalem are members of the harem. And they're talking about how this king is well known for his sexual prowess. Well, I think these facts and figures might sort of justify my interpretation there. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about recently in some of the different stories how, for the sake of the story, numbers are 
maybe exaggerated. Yeah, and what you're referencing, I think, is what we talked about when we looked at the exodus in that situation where there is a common convention to multiply something by 10 or 100 for, and, and that was a common narratival convention. So that it's not like there are liberal people saying that's way too high of a number to be believable. It's just a writing convention. So we maybe would see here, maybe realistically it was three and seven to make 10 or I mean, 30 and 70 to make 100 is still an extraordinary amount. But I think in the ancient records, there are kings who just had these massive harems. So it might not be totally inconceivable. Any notes in your study Bible that would help us out here? I'm just, I mean, the logistics of all of of having that many people in the harem, how it's just so much. It's, but maybe that just speaks to the, vast success and wealth of the kingdom. Yeah, he had all the wealth that he could have supported it. And in in those at that number, you know, at a thousand, you're sort of looking at like, you know, this guy's with a different woman every night over the course of three three years, you know, on a on a rotation maybe or something. That's kind of the picture you get with Ahasuerus and Esther as well. Uh, but what does the ESV study Bible say about this number of women? I mean, not really anything. Nothing specific to the actual number. So they're probably just focusing on the fact that he was not living wholeheartedly after God. They're not really commenting on the number of wives. Yeah, just that, yeah, he loved Pharaoh's daughter and many other women. And then, yeah, his heart turned away after other gods. That's just kind of basically all it says. <clears throat> any, any other observations about Solomon in chapter 11? I was wondering when I started reading, it seems like Solomon is okay with his wives and his families following after these other gods. And it does seem like there's some participation on his part too. Not sure to what extent. My question is about to what extent. Like some of these have sacrificing of infants and stuff to these gods that I've heard of in other stories. But yeah, the, yeah, how egregious right. was his false god worship? Did it include child sacrifice, these sorts of things? Obviously, as we get later into our text, the text identifies Ahab as worse than anyone who went before him. So we could at least say Solomon wasn't as vile as him. But yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, It would be hard to say. Well, Solomon turns away from the Lord, and there are punishments or consequences to that. The biggest one is that the kingdom is going to be divided, and it's not really going to be the case that there will be one David-eyed king ruling over Israel. Uh, But even in that, God seems to show a little bit of mercy or compassion to Solomon. Did you guys pick up on that at the end of chapter 11? Yeah, they were going to, his son was going to have what, one or two tribes or whatever i forget mm-hmm. you got a little a little something i think you're looking at verse 35 and 36 and 37 oh yeah we'll give one tribe something like that yeah and it seems like god didn't immediately divide the kingdom he let solomon reign until his death yeah 
Interesting too. You know, even with David, who it seems like he's saying, for the sake of David, I, you know, will have mm-hmm. mercy, some, and, but even David, you know, for the sin with Uriah is what's mentioned. You know, God kind of enacts punishment earlier, so it's interesting that he waits here. Yeah. Well, we get into chapter twelve, and the kingdom is fully divided, um, and kings keep going to war. And it's kind of hard to track unless your Bible has headings where it identifies which area the king is over. So I refreshed my memory and pulled up my Bible atlas at the back of my my Bible to remind myself that Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah is the southern kingdom. And you guys have the map actually on the page in your study Bible. So this was maybe less work for you to do. Um, but before we get there, I'd like to ask you guys uh, what you thought about the first scene in chapter 12 when Rehoboam gets advice and uh, he goes against the advice of his father's counselors and listens to the advice of his um, peers. What did you make of this narrative? I mean, it just kind of goes to show his foolishness of not listening to wise counsel, people that have been there for a long time, and just listen to it, listening to his stupid friends. Just, I don't know, seemed like they were just egging him on, kind of telling him, I don't know, nothing that helpful, just to be harsh. But it seems to be consistent with his character because. You know, he did hear out the, you know, the older advisors, and he also heard out his the people he grew up with, and just decided was like, no, my father's yoke was super light compared to what you're gonna experience mm-hmm. now, and so it seems like only a harsh person would would follow the advice that would just you know match the yeah his inclination anyway. So now, do you think Solomon listened to those advisors because in the way that. Rehoboam talks about things, it seems like the advisors are telling him, no, you need to be a peaceable guy. Don't be like your dad was towards these people. Um, so I'm wondering if these counselors have ever been listened to. Doesn't sound like it. Um, and of course, we make the connection back to Samuel's words to the Israelites who wanted to raise up Saul when he talked about the fact that if you raise up a king who will behave like the other nations, he's going to enslave you and and force labor on you. And that's exactly what happened. And then with his son, Solomon's son, it's even worse than it was with Solomon. Uh, So it's on a downward trajectory. I'm wondering, though, if you guys made any New Testament connections in 1 Kings 12, at least in this first half. I did not. Is this where Jesus says that his burden is is light. Yeah, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I hope that's not in John. It's in Matthew oh, okay. 11. See, they leave um, out all the good stuff in John. Well, you should have remembered it then. That's yeah, in Matthew well, 11. I, I remember the verse. So, I just didn't connect it. Yeah, so this is what I want to, the connection I want to draw. At the end of chapter 11, uh, God says that he is going to humble David's descendants because of their unfaithfulness, but not forever. So you're looking for a Davidic offspring king 
who will not fulfill the woe of or judgment that Samuel gives when he's talking about the, the kingly line over Israel, but one who will represent God's interests. And we get the picture of a king who is a really bad example of this, who makes people's burdens heavy, uh, who whose yoke is heavy on them, whose burdens aren't light. And in Matthew, Matthew explicitly connects Jesus to David. You know, in the first verse, he says that he's a son of David, son of Abraham. And down the road, we get this picture of a king who lifts burdens instead of increases them. As we continue in chapter 12, we find another thread that we could draw, perhaps, but maybe going in the opposite direction. As you guys read about Jeroboam, were you reminded of any previous Old Testament accounts that we've read? Oh, yeah, the golden calves. He doubles them up. Yeah, exactly. I, I just thought that was interesting because it's like almost exactly what happens in Exodus 32. You think he was aware of the history or just... Uh... Yeah, I mean, he says the exact phrase that Aaron says in Exodus 32. He says, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And that's what Aaron said. So you'd have to think there's got to be some awareness. Maybe he was hoping everybody else hadn't heard the story. Yeah, maybe he wanted everyone to think he's doing something unique and original, but he's really plagiarizing. I don't know. Does the ESV study Bible help us out with that at all? Well, they did point out what you said, that what he says is, uh, almost exactly what Aaron said. So there you go. You could write the ESV footnotes, apparently. Huzzah. At least that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I don't know. Man, I was not listening to what he said, but I think. Who, Aaron? I'm sorry. No, you. Or you. I didn't even hear what you said, and you're like, yeah, that's good. Oh, crap. I didn't. I was thinking. What did uh, you say? I what said, did... man, AJ, stupid. And Aaron <laughs> totally agreed. That makes sense. No, I don't remember what I said. <clears throat> Oh, what was the note? I, just at least the first part of the note says the same thing that Aaron said. It oh. just yeah, so it just referenced Exodus thirty-four, which is extra confusing because it says the same thing that Aaron said. That what he said is almost exactly what Aaron said. Sure. Yeah, this is <laughs> oh, like an Aaron yeah dream within a dream situation here. <laughs> well, just kind of going off what you were saying before with the connection to Jesus, it does kind of seem like. You know, we we anticipate this king who could have been like Moses, who would have lifted up the heavy yoke from, you know, in that time, Egypt. You know, they were slaves in Egypt, and Moses brought them out. You know, God brought them out, but led by Moses, mm-hmm. his leader, and instead is more like Aaron and makes the golden calf. And so I think Jeroboam you know, probably said those word and recognizes he's making those golden calves, not because of that, but just to maybe, he knows that's not acceptable in Jewish worship. And so it's probably just a. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows how much of it is. They're just borrowing from the pagan traditions around them. You know, maybe there's just this, this is, would be the natural thing to do when you're making an image of a God that delivers you from somewhere. I've, I'm not certain. Um, but it's certainly a bad situation. So then we get to chapter 13. And Matthew, I am imagining that this chapter is one of those chapters that you are referencing as really interesting because it really does make a good story here. 
maybe you can talk to us about the events that happened in this chapter. Yeah, it's a weird story. Uh, that's for sure. I mean, it kind of has two parts. Uh, the prophet, who isn't named, just a prophet, um, you know, he comes and gives his word that the Lord gave him. So Jeroboam was, uh, you know, just wanting a good old blessing from the Lord. And the interaction with the uh, the prophet, uh, it, it went a little bumpy at first. He didn't, what, he got mad at the altar or something? But anyways, he pointed or reached out, and then his arm withered so it couldn't work or it dried up. What does it say? Something like that. Uh, but then God healed it. I don't know. It was, it was kind of a weird, a weird scene, but then it ends up going well. Jeroboam wants him to, you know, wants to buy him dinner for, uh, for his prophesying. And the guy's like, nope, I was told not to do that. And I need to go back home a different way than the way I came. So the young prophet, he's leaving on his way. This other random old prophet, just he hears about it. And he's like, oh, I want to talk to that guy. Where is he? What way did he go? Goes and grabs him, lies to him, gets him to come hang out with him and have dinner. And then apparently, like, then he gets a word from the Lord like, hey, you really screwed up by listening to me. It's going to go bad for you. And then the guy leaves gets wrecked by a lion, which is cool. It's very clear. You know, the lion just is just hanging out with the donkey after that, not hurting the donkey, but he and just... And it didn't eat the guy. Right. Yeah, it just trashed the guy, left him in the road. Yep. Which actually, that kind of reminds me of a st- like a true story I just heard of. Uh, it happened a couple of days ago, I think, in India. Uh, an old woman was killed by an elephant, trampled... It attacked her. And then when they were trying to have like the little funeral thing uh, that evening, the elephant came back and trampled her again and then threw her body in the air and then left. No way. Yeah, true story. Uh, I don't know if that was like a divine appointed elephant, like this divine appointed lion. Probably not, but you know, it was kind of an interesting story, anyways. But, anyways, uh, this one had a lion, not an elephant trampling people. So, anyways, yeah, it went real bad for him because uh, he disobeyed, but then he was lied to. I don't know. It, it's an it's an odd story to chew on, I guess, all, how everything transpires. Yeah. And there's a connection to uh, chapters down the road where there are false prophets who have a spirit that is giving them misleading utterances, claiming the authority of the Lord. And then there's a prophet who's speaking words of judgment, and that's God's true word. So there is a little bit of that theme as we go. But but then what happens after the old deceptive prophet realizes that the guy he tricked is now dead? Well, he, just, he goes and grabs the corpse. I don't know. Then he kind of, kind of feels bad. But it's like, why did you lie to him to get him killed? Yeah. Wh- but why then did he trick him? I I don't know. But then and then it's like, but it's like, well, he shouldn't have lied and tricked him. But at the same time, it's like, well, the young prophet still should have known <clears throat> the, uh, you know, the command. But then if 
the guy's like, no, God talked to me, and he actually said this, come have dinner with me. It's like, is there a way he could have tested that to see if the guy was lying or not? I don't know. It's such a weird situation. Yeah, I don't know. And I guess we can only speculate on some level, but I wonder if this old prophet is jealous of this guy who has a word from God and instruction and is trying to get in with him a little bit or something. Being courted by the king. Yeah. 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 He wants to be part of that. So I don't know, but what what did you take away as the lesson of the account that Jeroboam should have learned? I think that it was a, you know, what his message was true, the, what the prophet was saying, right? Like the judgment came true because God followed through on what he had told the prophet. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's, if nothing else, a display of God's power and judgment for those who disobey his word, right? I wonder if Jeroboam took it kind of bad, like, man, I offered him dinner and he turned me down. Then he's going hanging out with this guy after he told me he couldn't. Like, what's wrong with me? (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that could be. I'm guessing he missed the point, but probably. Well, I mean, the text says that he, even after this, this is verse 33 of chapter 13. Even after this, Jeroboam did not repent of his evil way. Uh, so it seems that he was supposed to learn a lesson that would lead him to repentance, and he fails to. Right. So instead of listening to this prophet, he just made his own priests to worship on these high places. He's like, yeah. Oh, all right. Well, I mean, and he almost kind of got a double word from God because he got from the young prophet spoken to, and then he saw what the young prophet said, oh, I can't eat or drink with anybody, otherwise that's bad for me. And then that actually happened, and he's like, oh, he was potentially right about two things, but then he still ignores it. Then in chapter 14, we see that his son is sick, and he tries to have his wife dis- be disguised and to try to to have the prophet cure him, mm-hmm. and it does not does not go well. No, because the Lord speaks to the prophet, reveals what's about to happen, and then there's a word of judgment to this lady. Hey, as soon as you get home, you're not, you know, essentially you're not going to see your son alive again. When you get back, that's when he'll die, and everything's going to go to pot for this family. So God's powerful. His word's true. You should obey, and your sin affects other people around you, right? Yeah. yeah. We're seeing a lot of that here. And you you can't lie and manipulate your way to things going well. They're always just trying to do things their own way, lie, manipulate, cut corners, and it just always ends with destruction. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes those that that way of living in the world seems like it's rewarding at first, you know, but ultimately the the end of sin is death, right? Solomon, did he write Proverbs or a good amount of it? I mean, people say so. People say so. It it seems like he's just out of his mind later in life. Like he knows why is this guy ever we keep coming back to Solomon, but I just it's still mind blowing. It's all right. He's an interesting guy. he's one of my favorite people, characters, whatever in the Bible. He's a baller. Yeah, I find him very interesting because uh you know, obviously, like it says, he's the wisest man ever, and it's like he's got whatever Ecclesiastes probably maybe attributed to him. 
Same with um, a bunch of the Proverbs. I mean, Proverbs opens up saying the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David. Yeah. And the text that we read in First Kings had a number of Proverbs Solomon. that yeah. he wrote, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I find them very interesting. So there's a lot of good there, but yep. also... And, and I just return to some of the things that we talked about on Sunday in James about not being a double-minded person. You know, in First Kings 11, the text says that he was not wholeheartedly devoted to God. Um, he, he was a double-hearted person. And having all the wisdom in the world isn't going to do anything for you if you don't follow after God. Yeah, and we touched on that. A lot last time, or a little bit last time. Yep, yeah. yeah. I think there's a theme of double-mindedness or a failure of wholehearted love for God that appears throughout First Kings from that point on. So, for example, when Elijah is at Mount Carmel um, and all of the Israelites have gathered, you have the prophets of Baal, and Elijah says to the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? You know, how long will you... Be double-minded. How long will you be unstable? You, you know, if God is the true God, you need to choose him. And the people didn't answer a word. So this is a theme that I think we can detect throughout. Um, you see people who are wholeheartedly running away from God. Only one guy, really, Asa, he's the only one that I recall anyway, who seems like he's wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. But everyone else is either either double-minded or wholeheartedly against the Lord. Yeah. I think there might have been one more way towards the end of the book that kind of ended up being okay. But basically, yeah, other than that, everybody else was like garbage. Right. But he did, you know, remove the queen mother because of her idolatry. So he was committed to the Lord, even in terms of the way his family operated. Right. Now, was there anything, you know, I don't want to skip over too many of these kings as it kind of alternates from the northern and southern king and the way that they relate to each other and to the Lord. I don't want to skip through that too quickly to Elijah. Uh, But did you guys have anything else with those kings you wanted to talk about before we talk about this famous prophet Elijah? So I don't want to potentially derail this, but there was something I found very interesting that I wanted to bring up. Chapter 15, I mean, kind of verse, what, I don't know, three through six. They're talking about some guy that kind of became king. Okay. It says, nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him, establishing Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Mm -hmm. That sounds very clear. Maybe it's incomplete. I don't know, but that's going back. I thought you were going to ask this. Yes, going back to the wives and concubine thing. This is, hey, David nailed it every time except for when he screwed up and killed the guy that was bad that's what it makes us sound like and i just i i don't know what to think about it yeah so this this would be my response and feel free to push back on it or poke a hole in it or something but i i think the way that it's phrased 
first of all, indicates that it's somewhat of a general statement with an acknowledgement of this massive failure in David's life that's also just generally stated. So the whole sentence seems like it's speaking in generalities, you know, but I think beyond that, there's an emphasis in 1 Kings on kings who receive a word from the Lord through one of the prophets, and they either obey or disobey that word. And it seems that for any time a prophet confronts David about something and gives him a command of the Lord, he responds favorably to that command. He responds in repentance when he's failed. He responds in obedience when it's a command to do something. Clearly, there are other texts that document situations where David did things that were not pleasing in the sight of the Lord, such as when he took that census, and the Lord himself punished him and condemned him for it. So you can't you can't allow this text to shape your reading to ignore what other texts have been explicit about. So I would say anytime David received a command from the Lord, he responded properly to it. I mean, that seems plausible. That's a good point. Because what would you say about that incident where David counted all of the soldiers and the Lord gave him the option of you can you have three choices as the consequence to your sin? I mean, would you say that the act was not wrong in the sight of the Lord? I'm going to be honest, I don't really remember that that well. Well, yeah, remember when he he took the census and then God said, hey, speaking through a prophet, um, you, you have brought punishment on yourself in Israel, and you can either have a plague, you can either have, or, um, you know, what was it? An army can come and attack you or something else bad. You you all get, I forget what the three things Worms. were. That could be it. Uh, but but you remember, remember when we read that account where it's very clear that there's another incident that brings God's punishment on David and Israel? I actually don't, I don't remember that. Yeah, first chat, so this is 2 Samuel 24. David takes the census and then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, and um, God is going to punish him. He has three choices. Do you want three years of famine, to flee your foes for three months while they pursue you, or to have a plague on your land for three days? So David's actions clearly are not right in the sight of the Lord. I'm, I'm just trying to make the case that this is a general statement that probably has more to do with specific instructions given to David through a prophet, and it's not a statement that's encompassing David's whole life. David did plenty of things that were not right in the sight of the Lord. Um, He just responded properly when he got called out on them. Okay. No, that makes sense. I I think that's probably a good explanation. The only possible, and I don't think this would be the case, probably... But it's also obvious since David, uh, you know, always responded properly. He didn't, uh, he didn't allow any of his wives to lead him astray to false gods. You know what I mean? Whereas Solomon did. And mm-hmm. that became, you know, very much a problem when, the, when your wives are 
distracting you and having you serve other gods. Obviously, that wasn't the case with David. You know, I don't know, he must have ran a tight ship there. <laughs> he kept yeah. everything on track. And, you know, I don't remember all of David's wives, but were they all Israelites? Or, and they probably were. Or sojourners in Israel? I mean, Bathsheba likely was not an Israelite. You know, according to people's best guesses, she was a Hittite like Uriah. You know, maybe that's not the case. It's hard to say, but maybe because David's wives, if they're primarily from Israelites, they're not going to be tempting him to worship false gods because he's not bringing them in from other lands, unlike Solomon, who gets a wife from Egypt. So that's probably why it was okay for David to do that. We're we're uh, not serious about that comment, I don't think. Um, but there are maybe worse ways of doing a bad thing, and Solomon did a bad thing in a worse way than David did a bad thing, okay. as it relates to multiple wives. Could be. That's all I had. I just found that verse interesting. I'm like, hmm. Well, you didn't derail us too much. And, right. and I know that you, Matthew, are... Curious, and that's good. I think this is. I think this is good. I think um, you're also a little bit hesitant to make a moral judgment about some of these things in David's life, and I understand that. But I do think that the authors are intending for us to have our moral judgments um, pretty well calibrated to the larger commands of the Lord. So we can say it was wrong for David to have multiple wives, and it was wrong for Solomon to have multiple wives. And I think you agree with that. Yeah. The the thing that I just continually find interesting is how it's not specifically called out at mm-hmm. David and how there seemingly doesn't nothing bad comes of it. You know what I mean? There's no comeuppance for you know, for apparently disobeying, but it's just like, mm-hmm. well, apparently he was just kind of living in sin constantly then, but it didn't affect him negatively. That's where I get hung up, where I'm like, how do, how does that add up? Yeah. And I think we just want to say God is really patient with people, right? And he doesn't immediately bring retribution for every sin that we commit. You know, that's that's true for really any of the characters in the Old Testament and at the new, and in our lives. You know, we don't experience God's punishment or the full consequences or full range of possible consequences for sin in the moment. Um, and on the one hand, we say very often those consequences come down the road when you can't see them. But then on the other hand, sometimes God is just really patient, and and we should be thankful for it. So what do you think of Elijah as a prophet? I mean, he's pretty. he's pretty good. But he seems a little, I don't know, moody or depressed. He's just kind of laying there and he wants to die. Well, I kind of don't blame him. You know, God's telling him to go talk to these dangerous people who hate him. And he's like, man, I got to get out of here. And God's like, don't worry. I'll send some ravens. That was cool. Yeah. The ravens were just bringing him food. Yeah. Like, Twice a day. He's got sweet. meals and water. Yeah. And I think I'd like to hear you guys talk about the way that he on a small meal is able to have strength for walking for 40 days and 40 nights for his super running speed as he outruns a chariot. This guy has lived and, and raising someone from the dead, pretty much food that never runs out. This guy's had an amazing life. So I'd like to hear you guys talk a little bit about that. We just summed it up. Yeah. 
That's it. Yeah. I wanted you to suss it out a little bit more. I summarized it. The the whole thing with, uh, how do you say it? Ball, bail? I say ball, but you could say bail. Okay, well, I don't know. Ball, like that. Uh, The one thing I found kind of entertaining, is it the first biblical account of trash talking that Elijah does? Because he's like, hey, where's your God? Is he in the bathroom? Is he sleeping? You know, he's just, I mean, that's like legitimate trash talk. I thought that was funny. He's yeah, get, he's he, throwing down. Yeah, he's getting a little, I, I don't think in a in a wrong way, but he was getting a bit, you know, a bit cocky with him. Like, hey, your God is terrible. And so, I got the real thing here. So I'll just I, wait it out. Is this a precedent to where we can mock sin or people who are so foolish that they can't acknowledge it and they need a joke? They need a they need to be thrown down on to really jar them out of how ridiculous sin is and how you get fooled by sin. I think that's what this is saying. I mean Yeah, I I would say that everything in this story is an escalated event. So it's not the norm, right? This is clearly a showdown. And the false prophets are cutting themselves so they're bleeding everywhere. This is like everything's intensified. So as a normal mode of operating, I would say this is not a precedent or an example, but it may provide a precedent for the reality that there there are escalated situations and rhetoric sometimes matches that. Okay. Amen. So I'm just yes I, no. I'm just suggesting a little restraint, but also recognizing the possibility. He's just saying read the room, know yeah, when yeah. to yeah. Uh, know when to throw down. Yeah, and I think the, the normal mode of operating should not be to talk in that way, especially if you can't back up who what you're saying with who you are. You know, so I think it would be normal for people in our social media world to be that outrageous, but they they don't have the spirit of Elijah behind what they're saying. This guy can poke fun at all the prophets of Baal because of who he is and what God is doing. But then you also have to remember that pretty sh- soon after this, there's a threat on his life and he like begs for God to kill him and he runs and hides. So I would say this guy's living in extreme circumstances and we should be cautious to say my circumstances in parallel to his so I can be a jerk to all these false God worshipers or whatever. Well, and it's it's almost an extra display of faith that he was trash talking, you know. That's how great his faith was in God. So he, the he, failure would have been even worse yeah. if he couldn't deliver. Yeah. Hmm. And I would also say they're in a little bit of a different covenantal context because you'll notice that after Elijah's God comes through for him and the people are convinced that the Lord is God, he instructs them to round up all of the false prophets and execute them in this dried out valley. And we're not suggesting that's a precedent for the way that we relate to the people who we just made fun of. You know, So we, we should be a little bit cautious in appropriating this account for a mode of operating in the new covenant community. I just found it entertaining. Oh, and I think we should laugh really hard at what he's saying. Yeah. It, it is funny, but it's also a desperate situation. Well, I'm going to skip, and we can skip back if we need to. One thing that I found interesting, the whole scene with Naboth's vineyard. 
um, what's his name? Ahab. Yeah, Ahab. He wants his vineyard. Gives him a fair deal, like gives him an offer for it that gets turned down. Because his vineyard apparently is like right next door and it looks really nice. He's like, hey, I'd like to have that. Mm-hmm. Grow some of my veggies in there. And I'd just pause and say we're already, again, needing to refer to Samuel's words about the kind of king who will take your land. You know, so this is just another way that Israel's desire for a king like the other nations is coming back to bite them. Yeah. But, sorry. No, yeah, no, that's a good point. So anyways, uh, he's bummed out about that, but then his delightful wife, Jezebel, basically comes up with a scheme to lie about the guy and get him killed. And then they just kind of like, well, he's gone. That's our vineyard now. And thinking about it, it's kind of the same uh, kind of like high level. It's it's the same thing kind of that David did. He looks out the window, sees something close by. He's like, that's nice. I want that. Oh, you can't have that. Let me manipulate the situation and get this person killed. And then I'm just going to take it and pretend like everything's okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Dude, that's a great connection. Well, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of the same thing, but then it, you know, it goes, it goes poorly for him. He gets confronted about it kind of the same way David gets confronted about it uh, from a prophet and gets condemned. And to a certain extent, Ahab does repent. He's very, I don't know, he's sad. He's in sackcloth. He's just moping around. And it is noticed, um, it is noticed by God, I think. Yeah, it, it's noticed by God. And Which verse are you looking at? It's uh, 21, 29, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Yeah. So, I don't know, I just found that interesting. I'm like, hey, it's like... Same thing that David did, but just, you know, different different shapes and objects in the slot of the story. But other than that, it's kind of the same thing. And the punishment was on his son, because yeah. David's son died. Yeah. David. Well, and Ahab, of course, died as well, right? Eventually. Well, he, so did David. Well. Yeah, one, no, one from old age, one right. more gruesomely. Yeah, Ahab. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. I don't know. Ahab, it seems like he temporarily repented and was following God or at least doing things enough for God to relent a little bit. But yeah, he ends up still not ending well. Hope I didn't jump over a bunch of stuff. that. No, and I think, you know, the word of the Lord was kept when the dogs are licking up his his blood. In the Christian Standard Bible, there's a line that says, and the prostitutes bathed in it, where it makes it seem like they bathed in the blood. And I, I think that's an unhelpful way of translating it. You know, I understand why, but I think for our grammar and syntax, the reference should be more clearly that it's in the pool of Samaria, not in the blood of Ahab, for whatever that's worth. If, if anyone's reading in the Christian Standard Bible, that might be confusing. Right. Like there was some of the blood in the water that they were bathing Yeah, in. that could be. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what I assume, because... I didn't figure most people at any point in history would just straight up bathe in pure blood. So that makes sense. Another thing that I found 
a little bit amusing, which I think potentially is instructive. Uh, in 22, verse 8, they're wanting to find a guy to inquire of the Lord for them. This is what Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're talking. They want some options from, from some prophets. Uh, the name, I don't know how to pronounce this, Micaiah? Micaiah? Micaiah. Micaiah, okay. So Micaiah's name gets thrown out there, and Ahab's like, I hate that guy. He always gives me bad news. Like, he never says anything favorable about me. I hate that guy. He's a bad news bear. Right, it, which I found funny because uh, it, it's I'm sure it was true, but he's just like, but I think that goes to show Ahab's um, just how he's not really following God at all. He's just always doing his own thing. So whenever he gets a word, it's like, hey, you're not doing stuff right. You're disobeying. You're bad. Things are going to go bad for you because you're disobeying. And he just doesn't want to hear yeah, it. Yeah, the problem's with him, not with the prophet. Right, right, right. And he, he, he seems to be missing that. He's like, man, that guy's always telling me stuff I don't want to hear. So I don't want to listen to him. But then they do end up bringing him in. And I didn't know what to make of this. This was a little bit confusing because, so there were other prophets that were apparently deceived that gave him favorable, a favorable word. But then this Micaiah or however you say his name, he's told from the Lord that actually a spirit deceived everybody else and uh, Ahab actually shouldn't. He will not have victory if he tries to go into battle. That's what that's what happened, right? I was trying to I had to reread through this part a few times because it was a little bit confusing. At first, Micaiah says, Oh yeah, you'll have victory. That's good. And then they like question him and press him on it. And he's like, actually, God told me that all the other people were deceived and you shouldn't do this thing. And it's gonna go badly for you. And then but they don't like that. And then Ahab ignores it, goes into battle anyways, even though he's told not to. And the result, well, he gets killed. So, And what was the situation of his death? Yeah, it was a random, it was just a random shot in the air, just a random arrow, because they were looking for him, because he was disguised. They were looking for him to kill specifically only him. And a guy just randomly shot an arrow just to nowhere. And it was a divinely appointed arrow pierced right through a little crack in the armor. And yeah, Ahab, he goes down. Because again, he didn't like the news. It always seemed like bad news to him, but that's because he always wanted to do his own thing Mm -hmm. and didn't want to listen to what God said. So it's always going to sound like bad news if you're trying to do that. And in this, we have a parable, don't we? Yes. Listen to God or die by arrow. Or maybe an angry elephant. This is getting dark. Leave that in there. <laughs> all right, all right. We got to lighten this up. I got a joke for you. <laughs> what kind of man was Boaz before he got married? Ruthless. Yes. Good job. <laughs> you guys knew that one. Um, I've never heard it. Oh, it's an easy one. Okay, how about what is the earliest recorded tennis match in the Bible. Is that the Moses one? I think you're getting close. It's where Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. 
Oh, no. I wasn't thinking of that. <laughs> Did I send you guys the meme a long time ago about Jesus' greatest miracle? I don't think so. Oh, it's funny. It's it's good in meme form. It's Jesus and all the disciples. And it says, Jesus' greatest miracle, having 12 close friends in his 30s. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's transition to the New Testament. AJ, we are finishing the Gospel of John, your favorite gospel. Yeah, so we just have the last three chapters of John in our reading, and I think we can wait to discuss the book of Acts next week because it just went into the first two chapters, I think, or part of chapter two even. So it might make sense to just start in Acts next week. Yeah, just tell our listeners so, so they aren't disappointed. So I'm telling them right now. Oh, nice. Come back next week for Acts. Yeah. So in the last couple chapters, you know, Jesus has been arrested. So he's already kind of been condemned. Um, so he's being delivered over to be crucified. And then we have the crucifixion, Jesus' death, and the resurrection. We don't really see in detail. And I think we can maybe talk about that a little bit. And then Jesus appears to the disciples. And we see the kind of the focus on the disciples after that. Um you know, Jesus only makes an appearance three times in, you know, John records here. The crucifixion of is, of Jesus is, of course, the the climax of the book. Something with the crucifixion that, that I kind of found interesting was that it seemed like, even beginning with before Jesus was arrested, it seemed like Jesus was in control. Like, he was not surprised that Judas was coming to arrest him and betray him. He had talked about it, that he someone was going to betray him. And, you know, he was up front. He's like, yeah, I'm right here. I've been here the whole time. You're just going to come to arrest me now at night? Like, okay. And then, you know, he seems to, when they're interviewing him, Pilate, and he seems to just be like, well, you say I'm God, you know? Pilate's like, you know, I can have authority to, to kill you, right? Like, and Jesus is like, well, you only have that authority because God gave it to you, and he's claiming to be God, so that's why he's... He's here. So it, it was just interesting that Jesus was in, it just seemed like he was in control and we see him more as this victor instead of a victim. Yeah, I think this is the whole dynamic of Jesus being the God-man who's coming not to be served, but to serve. And he, at times, has avoided situations where this crucifixion or martyrdom would happen prematurely. So he's exercised a certain level of control that's expressed in all of the gospel tellings. But I think you're right. Uh, we we see him uh, somewhat like Isaac, willingly walking forward to a sacrificial death. One thing I heard pointed out somewhat recently about the uh, kind of the the full crucifixion, well, kind of the whole the whole scene at the end where Jesus, um, you know, is betrayed and then goes through all the stuff, eventually is crucified. Um, all of the events, even leading up to it, basically kind of starting at the betrayal, anything and everything that can happen bad to a person, Jesus experiences in every way. So he's completely blindsided and betrayed by one of his closest 
friends, colleagues, whatever, somebody, you know, he trusted and spent like three years with traveling all around. So he's betrayed by somebody that he should be able to trust. And then. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think he probably knew early on that he was going to betray him. Yeah, but that doesn't make that doesn't. It still makes it hurt. That so doesn't. I, I, see I was what gonna say saying. that doesn't like, make it any lighter. It's it's somebody. I, I wouldn't say blindsided. I guess so I just wanted to. Okay. All right. That. No. 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 Yeah. Well, uh, I, obviously, obviously, Jesus was fully God. He knew what was going to happen, but he was also fully man. And it's like, this guy is in your court. He's in your crew. He's on your side, helping you achieve your ministry, and then you know, he betrays you. Yeah, That's and not I, supposed to happen. I would want to, along with you, Matthew, clarify that Jesus's deity does not negate his human experiences, whether it's the death of his friend Lazarus, even though Jesus can raise him from the dead, he fully entered into the, the experience of human loss and death and grief. And with Judas, he fully enters into the experience of betrayal. So I think we need to remember that unless we get to this spot where we start saying, well, the things Jesus went through didn't really matter because he was God. Uh, we want to avoid that. And I know no one's suggesting that we belittle or demean his experiences, but we should recognize he fully experienced it. Yeah. And that's kind of what where I was going with this is, okay, he's betrayed by somebody he should be able to trust, somebody that was on his team. Then he goes to trial He's done nothing wrong. He's perfect. The The mob is given the choice, well, who should we let free? Jesus, this perfect guy, or a criminal? I don't know. He's a murderer or something. So and even though you're perfect, you've done nothing wrong, the mob chooses to free a murderer instead of you. That sucks. And then, you know, he's beaten horribly, uh, flogged and all that. And then all his other closest friends completely abandon him. They claim to not even know him. So then he's just left completely by himself. And then obviously we all know very well, very brutally killed by crucifixion. So I thought it was interesting pointing out that obviously the physical, uh, you know, the physical reality of Jesus' crucifixion is awful. And we think, man, that's so awful. That would have been so painful which it would have been, but there's also a lot of human experiences that we would experience, betrayal, people lying to us, you know, having things go really poorly because someone lies to you, people you think you can count on completely abandoning you in your most desperate time of need. So, you know, just, I found it interesting, the fact that, uh, you know, all of Jesus's suffering during the crucifixion, it wasn't all physical. It was also on a human level, you know, emotional suffering, uh, being wronged in so many ways and being completely abandoned and left alone. Like that's a very, you know, human experience aside from just the pure physical torture that it was. Because isn't there a verse somewhere where it says something about how God can sympathize with everything that we're going through or something? What's that verse? Isn't that a verse? Jesus can sympathize with anything and everything you're going through because he went through it. And, and it really is true. It's like, oh, somebody hurts you. Somebody betrays you. Somebody lies to you. They stab you in the back. Or people you think you can count on 
are aren't count onable. They bail on you. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, th- that's very real everyday life things that we all go through that hurts us. And then it's actually when you stop thinking about it, well, Jesus went through all the same exact stuff too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really meaningful and recognizing that Jesus embraced the full depth of human experience is something that I think is really comforting and encouraging and helpful and hope-giving because as we experience these things, we're not the only one who's felt that way. And we all know that experience of talking with someone and they're describing their experience and we just say, you too, you know, like I've had that exact same experience and there's a camaraderie and connection that's forged through shared experience. And we have that with Jesus. And so it's good to dwell on the fact that, that we have that with him instead of seeing him as distant from us. I think I said before that John doesn't really focus on God's kingdom as a, a theme. I think we he mentions it one time back in chapter three with Nicodemus, who does show up again to help bury Jesus. Uh, so that's the third time that he does show up. And we weren't sure about that before. And is that the same Nicodemus? I want to say so. What does the ESV study note say? I'm always asking about ESV study notes because you guys both have your ESV study Bibles in front of you, and I don't have my Christian standard study Bible in front of me. Yeah, Though maybe I, I should. I think You could. Is it way over there on the other side of the room? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to grab it. Yeah, well, the, the text says it in 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, so no study Bible needed. We have the real Bible. <laughs> we have the real Bible needed. What what was that chapter and verse again? I need to get that in my brain. Nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, as Jesus is buried. Nicodemus is not mentioned in the other. Yeah, accounts, in, so so in all three cases, it identifies him as coming to Jesus by night. Yep. So so there's no debate there. No, that should not indicate his spiritual darkness. I I don't think so. And that it's the same Nicodemus. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to say it's, it's indicating that it's that, that Nicodemus dude, yeah. and coming by night. I think he, you know, I think there's a shift along the way where coming by night first is secretive and later on gives, you know, some kind of resonation. Maybe that's not a word. It, it brings to mind the trial of Jesus by night, but now he comes and he publicly is identifying with Jesus, you know, so I'd look favorably on him based Mm -hmm. on these three accounts. Yeah, I agree. And we see, you know, this theme in this section of, of chapters of Jesus's regal glory. Maybe we could say Jesus being the King, you know, he, John describes him as being lifted up instead of just being crucified, like the other, you know, other, Mm -hmm. the criminals around him. So, I think that is a central kind of motif for this passion narrative here that, you know, is not present in other places, but. Yeah. And I think, you know, along with that, there, there are subtle hints of Jesus's deity throughout that are paired with his humanity. Since we're talking about this, this John very often attributes human actions to Jesus, like weeping and feeling anguish, but then also the opening, you know, some people call this a spiritual gospel, you know, emphasizing Jesus's deity. And when you get to the angels at the tomb, one, you know, at the head and one at the foot, we get this image of the cherubim uh, at, at the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so once again, there's this connection to his deity 
in in his glory that he shares with the Father. The uh, Septuagint says that David's tomb was in a garden, and we see Jesus being buried in a garden. Do you think we can also kind of have him remember the Garden of Eden too with? Yeah, I knew Adam. I would be out. way more inclined to make a connection to the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I I don't Lots know so gardens. I don't know so much about the garden. I think the whole pr- thing with Jesus's tomb being in a garden-like situation. I don't think it's John, but other accounts have the women misidentifying Jesus as a gardener, so a new Adam figure. So I think there's some of that. I think at the very least, like, we can see this kind of... He's not being buried like a criminal. You know, he's being buried in a new tomb that's never had anybody there. Mm-hmm. And Joseph of Arimathea, I think, is the one who gives him his own personal tomb. And so probably a, a, a decent burial here. So, mm-hmm. And, you know, to make another connection, we've now encountered then two instances of individuals who gave up their tomb and plan to be buried with a righteous prophet, you know. Um, so the the prophet who was deceived wasn't totally righteous, but the deceiving prophet offered his own tomb, and now we have someone else offering a tomb to Jesus. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Resurrection Church Podcast. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Aren't you guys going to talk about Jesus's breakfast with Peter? Oh, Okay. AJ, what did you think of Jesus' breakfast with Peter? What did he order? I think he's a pancakes, waffle guy. They probably were they allowed. He was to, a fish guy, man. Well, were they allowed to do bacon or no? Did this occur right after the miracle that, or Jesus told him to fish on the other side and they pulled up three hundred? I believe so because right after that happens, you know, the net was so full it was torn, and Jesus said, "Come and have breakfast." And then when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus talked to Simon Peter. So it's all like a connected event. Well, I think we should be thinking of the other verses where it says that Jesus has sheep in other folds or something, you know, and then we see his mission in the Gospel of John to for the Jews to the Samaritans and then to the ends of the earth or to the the, the Gentiles. And even in the, the way his title king of the jews was written in multiple languages on the plaque on the cross you know i think that's to be shown that he's the king of not just the jews but of everybody who reads these different languages and so mm-hmm. i think this feed my sheep feed all these different types of sheep i think maybe does paul go out to he does to the gentiles right? yeah i mean that's interesting i haven't heard that theory before um but it's plausible. Yeah. That's all I have to say about this. Yeah. I would, just I would like just Jesus emphasize eats. that. Is some, that what you were saying? Well, and Jesus eats humanity, Important. glorified body. Um, but then sometimes people make a big deal about the different Greek words used for love here. And they try to make a big preaching point out of it, but they ignore the fact that different words for sheep are used as well. And so if you've heard sermons that way, there's that's probably not correct. I haven't heard anyone preach it that way in a long time, but I was talking with someone about this a few years ago in seminary, and they were really adamant that the different words indicated different things, um, and they just ignored the di- that there were different words for sheep and that John uses different words for love throughout the gospel. So anyway, this is a little bit of an inside baseball thing, but 
it may be worth mentioning. Well, regardless, as we get to the end of the book, um, you know, John has presented his case. He's told us why he wrote the the book and the way he wrote it. Um, and it seems like as we see most of the people that encounter Jesus, no one leaves neutral. Jesus is very divisive. You either believe him or you want to try to kill him. So I think we're kind of left with all of this evidence towards Jesus, almost as if the trial of Jesus started at the beginning of the book instead of, you know, in in Mm. 18 or 19. And we're allowed to see the evidence and to decide who do we think Jesus is? What do we need to believe about him today as we read these different parts of of the book of John? You know, I, I liked the way that John runs to the tomb in the text that, that we read this week and, um, you know, he saw and he believed. And I think that's really kind of the, a climax for us as readers of this is we should be believing in Jesus and in the historical Jesus. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, you know, I'm probably conflating the gospels at this point, but, you know, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And here he asked Peter, do you love me? And these are two questions that we have to answer. Who do we say that Jesus is and do we love him? Okay, so next week we will be discussing Second Kings. Next week I'm out of town, by the way, so you guys are on your own. Next time love we'll it. be discussing Second Kings and the book of Acts. This podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church in Burnsville, Minnesota. For more information about our church, visit resurrectionmn.org.